Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Um, smaller crowd than usual, but that's okay, maybe because supportability isn't as as sexy as some of the other topics like Weibel. And yes, I did infer that Weibel is sexy. But what is supportability and how does it relate to reliability? So before we launch into this topic, let's go to an example, a real-world example, a case study where this Armoured personnel carrier, it's a, quite literally what its name suggests, an armoured personnel carrier. It's designed to carry personnel across the battle space um, and it's armoured, so it offers protection. You can see that uh, it has tracks um, that helps it with mobility, doesn't have to be on roads. Um, and these armoured personnel carriers or vehicles like this have been the mainstay of many battles in the military um, or 19th, 20th century military ca campaigns. And this one was actually subjected to a midlife modification or midlife upgrade, whatever you want to call it, maybe midlife crisis, uh, because it was getting pretty old. And these vehicles are often used for decades before they get replaced. And in this case, there was a belly plate, or what we call a belly plate on this armored um, personnel carrier on the original version, um, to allow maintainers to access the underside of the power pack, which is very useful if you wanted to do things like drain oil. But in the midlife upgrade, they decided to weld shut this belly plate to protect against chemical agents and IEDs and everything else. Uh, even if you have a plate which is bolted together, the fact that it has uh, a discontinuity in the structure is a structural weakness that IEDs can support. Problem with that, though, is that uh, how do we go about changing the oil? Now we have a belly plate welded up. Well, in this case, you have to remove the power pack to change the oil. The reason being is because I didn't think to include an oil pump in the midlife upgrade. So just a rhetorical question. If you had to uh, classify or rate the supportability of this vehicle, what would it be? I know we're talking about a very specific instance, a very specific functional characteristic. The reality is this vehicle is now a lot less supportable because it is that much harder to change the oil. And not only is it harder to change the oil, when you get a crane overhead to remove the entire power pack to change the oil, uh, you do all sorts of damage to that power pack. The power pack is designed to be inserted and replaced uh, very infrequently. It's supposed to happen, but it's not supposed to be a weekly occurrence for obvious reasons, but it borderline, borderline became that approach because we needed to uh, change the oil on these big engines quite, quite frequently, as you can imagine. Of course, that means you need to have cranes, you need to have more maintainers in addition to all the damage you're, you're causing on the, uh, on the power pack when you remove it and replace it. Now, this whole concept of supportability is linked to what we call life cycle costs for these sorts of things. And this is a chart from the Defense Acquisition University from the US. It's a little bit dated now, but the actual principle is remarkably consistent. And you can see on this chart, we have on the vertical axis, life cycle costs of what are usually military acquisitions or military projects. And as you can see, the life cycle costs for a particular capability increases over time. This is a cumulative line, and uh, you can see how that line starts to get steeper and steeper once it we move into the sustainment space, the operations and support space. So about 60 to 80% of life cycle costing, which is a very military term I know, will be spent during sustainment. But anyone who comes from an asset management background or comes from a fleet management background will know this to be true. You spend most of your money supporting your fleet. You spend most of your money uh, repairing failures and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, we can often get um, uh, wowed by the purchase price of things, but it's usually it's usually in sustainment phase, the operations phase, the support phase, where the fuel, the oils, the maintenance and everything else, uh, those costs dwarf the purchase costs. But the problem with that is that the ability to influence life cycle costs decreases rapidly from conception to manufacture. So 
of course, your ability to influence life cycle costs is almost uh, is, is as high as it's going to be at the very start of your design process. But they found for these military projects that 90% of our ability to influence life cycle costs is used up by that particular point where we transition from what the military USDOD calls engineering and manufacturing development through to production and deployment. In the real world, we call that uh, essentially transition to manufacturing, transition to production, whatever you want to call it in your own you know, space. But we stop designing, we start building. By that stage, 90% of our ability to influence life cycle costs is used up. But it is often the case that they, this is when we start thinking about life cycle costs. We'll have bright young design engineers say, hey, for this new military vehicle we're, we are about to design, we have to focus on speed and protection and firepower and capacity. That's that's the these are the most important functions, and of course we need to build those into our machines. And we'll worry about supportability later on. I mean that happens secondarily. The problem with that is that we often get tunnel vision and we forget about it until it's too late to do anything meaningful about it. And when we do have that workshop where we come up with wonderful supportability ideas then um, we, uh, we is often far too expensive to implement the, the corrective actions or the great ideas. Now, what is supportability in this context? The reality is no one has a widely, wild, widely accepted definition. It's just the ability to support. And essentially, it uh, can be measured in many things, but perhaps the most common way of measuring supportability is how much it costs to keep your thing up and running. The reality is we forget about it until it's too late. And because a good chunk of our operations, um, management, or our sustainment costs come from repair and maintenance, supportability is, is um, tied at the hip to concepts like reliability. So you can't ever think about one without thinking about the other. Now, for veterans of my webinars, you'll have seen something like this over the years, which is a sort of supposed to be a generic production life cycle or product life cycle or design life cycle, whatever you want to call it. And you can see here that I have incorporated into this, uh, this life cycle where you can see you've got concepts, specifications. In the middle, we have this reliability design cycle, which is a subject of lots of other stuff I've done through Ascendo. And then we move on to manufacture, sustainment, and disposal. The reality is most people who use the term supportability do so from organizer. Uh, most people who use the term supportability rather come from organizations where they use process, uh, activities like Vermeers to get their products to where they want them to be. So let's just recap on how Vermeers influence our life cycle. Now, the system Vermeer is there to identify the vital few component functional failure modes for our design for me is to focus on design corrective actions. And our design for me is there, amongst other things, to help us identify the vital few manufacturing specifications that our process for me is going to address. So we want to do system for me is before we start designing to improve our prioritize effort. Design for me is get done on a fraction of our overall system to improve the design, including the interface between components. And last but not least, our process for me is based on, uh, as opposed to looking at the product, it looks at the process. And the, the process has failed when the product it produces is outside of specifications or otherwise not high quality. And so these three different sorts of Vermeers uh, work very closely to make sure we get something which is amazing for our customers, our users, our operators, our soldiers, sailors, and airmen. At the very, very start, at the very start, we need to think about supportability. What does this look like for the user and customer? And for those of us who are still struggling to grasp what supportability is, join the club, but we're going to go through a couple of examples which hopefully puts the term supportability into, uh, into content, real world context. Now, supportability requirements need to outline what it looks like for the user and customer. Does your product need to give early warning of impending failure? 
does your product uh, need to uh, align with a specified preventive maintenance regime of your plant? i.e. do you have weekly downtime and therefore the product you're purchasing needs to have preventive maintenance uh, intervals that align with your plant's weekly shutdown. Does your product, this is going to be a rhetorical question, does your product need to have the replaceable components, the parts that wear out and routinely get replaced, do they need to be accessible, really accessible, for your maintainers and technicians? And the answer is yes. Does your product uh, or machine, do you want it to only have to, uh, do you need your maintainers to only uh, have one spanner or wrench in order to undo every single bolt? That's sort of a maintainability requirement, which is within the family of supportability, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Other things. Does your product or machine need to communicate with your logistic information system over a Wi-Fi network or use RFIDs to uh, help transmit its location? What does health and usage monitoring systems mean to your product? It need, Whatever your philosophy is as a customer, user or operator, it needs to be embedded in the concept. Then when we come to specifications, when you think about uh, think about the functions that are incorporated into your design. So if it does, if your machine does need to communicate um, that it's about to fail, how does it do that? What communication protocols does it use? And the reality is supportability happens very, very early. It happens right at the start. If it doesn't happen there, it's never going to. And so for that reason, many supportability efforts devolve into just calculating how much support your product needs to, needs to maintain. It's not there to uh, influence supportability. It's there to deal with the, the uh, actual supportability that has been um, created in often in often many cases throughout without ever thinking about it. So some organizations schedule supportability to happen right at the end when they start to think about production or maintenance. It's okay, we're transitioning, so let's get the maintenance plan up and running. But unfortunately, it's too late to make meaningful changes. Supportability needs to happen right at the very start when we're all excited about designing an amazing new product. So you can't easily at least make your system or item supportable after it has been designed. So let's go back to our armored personnel carrier, which is, like I said, the backbone of many uh, militaries across the world. And you can see at the top of this armored personnel carrier, it actually, it actually has a weapon, it has a turret. Most people who uh, think about turrets and, and uh, weapons on armored vehicles think of tanks. And tanks aren't armored personnel carriers, tanks. Uh, carry very few people because they're all about having monstrous weapon systems, huge barrels, huge cannons up there, turrets that can turn and and uh, and uh, really lock onto a target and, and help uh, help the gunner who's inside the vehicle uh, stay on their point of aim. But even smaller APCs like this still have formidable turrets and weapon systems. And in the heart of these armored personnel carriers and armored vehicles, you have what is called a turret positioning system, TPS. You can see here that uh, we have at the very heart of our turret positioning system, a turret ring. And that turret ring has got teeth on it that rotary gear drives or, uh, can turn in order to turn the uh, turret from left to right. And you can also see that there's this thing called the linear drive. Now that doesn't make a lot of sense uh, for people who don't haven't been exposed to this sort of machine. The linear drive pushes the barrel of the weapon up and down. You can see there's gyroscopes. So the turret positioning system essentially knows it's a uh, pitch roll and yaw or attitude or depression or, or how, when it's turning and things like that. You can then see that all these things get plugged into what's called motor controllers. And so what that essentially means is that the gunner who's interacting with this system with hand controllers can essentially have this, the barrel of the weapon, 
pointing in exactly the same direction, regardless of whether the armored, armored vehicle turns, goes over a bump, goes backwards, increases speed, slows speed down, et cetera, et cetera. And if these uh, target positioning systems are really, really good at making sure that barrel points out where that gunner wants this thing to aim, regardless of how many boulders the vehicle's traversing. And uh, if it's turning, if the vehicle was turning to go around a tree or an obstacle or things like that. And so question for you guys, if you were in charge of a brand new armored vehicle, which had a turret with a main weapon on it, and obviously that implies a turret positioning system, which helps the gunner make sure that the barrel is pointing in the right direction, no matter what the vehicle is doing, what would you be looking for in terms of supportability from this turret positioning system? So if you've got any responses, any ideas, or any hard-earned experience in this regard, please feel free to share it in the chat window. This is brand new information. Feel free to sit back and let everybody else do the hard work. But that said, if you, this is not, even though some of us might not have got been, had a military background, it's just a machine that needs to do something and you need to maintain it. What would you be wanting from a machine in terms of helping you make it some more supportable? GPS calibration. So it needs to make sure that, for example, I'm guessing, Victor, that uh, the GPS calibration, although that wasn't implied here, um, and not, not all tire positioning systems have GPS, uh, GPS capabilities, let's say it did, it needs to ideally calibrate automatically or let you know when it's not calibrated. Is that right? wait for Victor to get back on that one. But in the meantime, I see Michael has put in there periodicity of lubrication for the gears. I, if you need to lubricate the gears every five minutes, that's a less supportable design than one that only needs to be lubricated every year, for example. Richard points out, consider where the maintenance is performed in the field versus the shop. Fantastic. Uh, many devices in uh, military vehicles can be designed in a way that allows maintenance to be to uh, be done quite happily in dusty, dirty environments under trees. If that thing needs to be repaired in a shop where the ground is perfectly level, the atmosphere is perfectly maintained, then that is inherently less supportable because that is harder to bring back online. Victor has clarified that fantastic defining life for different components. Uh, so we've got some really good answers here. Uh, Williams uh, wrote report on motor loading to predict gear wear and lubrication. Fantastic. We're starting to think about what we might like. In a term, residual useful life is used in uh, this sort of scenario where the machine, the device is trying is uh, is designed in a way where it can understand how much longer its components have before they fail. And then if they understand how long they've got to fail, I can see Asim wrote that in his uh, his or her, sorry, I'm not sure. My apologies. Um, uh, I'm not sure of uh, who, who Asif is. Asim is, so I should say. But uh, do we want the residual useful life to be communicated automatically, wirelessly? How do we get firmware updates installed on the software? What sort of maintenance gets conducted by untrained operators, i.e. in the field? Do you want to track its accuracy over its surface service life? Do you want a modular maintenance philosophy? So uh, I can see that there's a couple more comments coming in, but we're all in the same mindset. How do we want this thing to be easier to look after? And if depending on how you run your particular military, um, no worries, Asim, uh, you might have a very specific approach. For example, modular maintenance is a maintenance philosophy where you ask uh, designers to come up with uh, machines where you can simply swap out uh, components really easily and replace them and then have that swapped out component taken back to a workshop to be repaired 
That is one philosophy. And that sounds all well and good, but it comes at a cost. And that cost needs to be well understood, not just monetarily, monetary, monetary cost, but if everything's modular, then it usually requires bigger machines, bulkier machines. Uh, you can't pack uh, as many components into a small space as you used to. So modular maintenance, some organizations love it. Some organizations shy away from it. And there's no right or wrong answer. It's just the right, right answer for your organization. So when it comes to uh, supportability, you have to start with the requirements, which is um, uh, when I say uh, what a requ uh, requirement, uh, uh, requirement is that is how a user or operator or customer would describe what they want the thing to do. Supportability function is how an engineer or designer would describe an element or characteristic of that design or that machine to support um, a requirement. A specification is a very, very clear definition of that function, which usually includes uh, tolerances. And of course, that specification is often based on metrics. How long do we need uh, servicing to, so how long should the servicing interval be, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, supportability function is a behavior, process, action, or task that enables supportability. One function example function is the ability to predict failure. Uh, can it warn about failure? Can it communicate information about failure? Can it diagnose failure? Is your system easy to uh, rectify failure? Are the high usage components located in, in arm's reach, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Can we prevent failure? Can we have fault isolation? We, can we mitigate faults? And of course, when it comes to supportability, there is so, so much involved that it makes supportability a very challenging uh, area to easily define. So with, there's, this is a little map which shows just how, um, uh, how many factors go into things like support, supportability. When do you, when, when you need to do, what you need to do when it does fail, corrective maintenance, so on and so forth. So, when it comes to supportability though, and reliability, there are two main metrics that sort of overlap, and that is reliability itself and availability. Now, when we talk about reliability and availability, but that implicitly uh, in, includes a whole bunch of what we call maintenance or maintainability metrics as well. And so there are tons of metrics out there and here are but some, if you, if you uh, we're not going to go through it in this conversation, but if you're into availability, you need to understand whether you want inherent availability or achieve availability. We've got built-in testing on the left. We call that bit or built-in testing equipment bite. Um, so what is the built-in testing coverage, built-in testing accuracy? How much of your machine do you want built-in testing to look at? And how accurate do the fault diagnoses be? And here's a hint. You really need to have a robust FAMIA or robust fault tree analysis or otherwise have a really good understanding of what the weak points of your system are before you can do that. So supportability is in a way necess necessarily a broad topic and there's not a lot of agreement on it. So you need to work out what it means for your system or your 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 um uh, your organization because there is it is uh, can mean all things to all people. Now, what supportability is not is support itself. We need to understand that supporting things can be expensive. But let's look at what I mean when I say supportability is not of itself support. I just see a couple of questions. Are you using the term supportability interchangeably with maintainability? No, I'm not because while the, although maintainability is a huge part of supportability, uh, there are lots of different definitions of maintainability out there, but there's also some supportability metrics or some supportability characteristics, I should say, which are not specifically linked to maintainability. So uh, if you 
if, if you if you think about you could argue that residual use for life is a good example of overlapping maintainability and supportability but reality residual use for life is a reliability metric more than anything else the ability to use that residual use for life or the ability to calculate it and then use it to inform decisions yeah one could argue that's maintainability one could argue with supportability another form of supportability is for example, how much lubrication do you need to go through? How much fuel do you need to go through? Something can be awesome to maintain, but if it goes through a lot of fuel, if it goes through a lot of uh, consumables or a lot of um, a lot of material like that, it's not as supportable as a comparable system, which doesn't. So for that reason, maintainability is not equal to supportability, but many aspects of maintainability overlap with supportability. Uh, Michael wrote, one question is, what is the indentured level of replaceable units? Now, that's a very specific question, but I think it's a rhetorical question. Um, but essentially, uh, I think you're getting at where can you replace those units? Can you replace these units at the front line, uh, front line units, front line workshop, depot, whatever the right term is for your organisation, um, or out in the field or on the cusp on the on site or does it have to be sent back to the OEM etc cetera, etc cetera. but let's look at this big truck here this is a really big mining truck when I say really big I mean really really big um, and these trucks have a 400 ton payload and they'll often be driven non-stop just so you know for whatever reason I cannot see the attendees anymore I can just see that we have 19 of them my uh, window has gone completely blank. I might shut it and open it again to bring you guys back. But no, there is, can't see a list of you guys there. Just uh, uh, so if you have any questions, feel free to put them in the chat window. I can see a couple up, a couple coming up. I'll get back to them um, before this uh, conversation is done. So this big truck will often be driven nonstop, costs say five to six US million dollars. So it's kind of a big deal. And in the middle of this big truck, is a really big engine. And when I say really big engine, I mean really big engine. This engine is um, bigger than most vehicles. It is a 20 cylinder engine. It of itself costs between 700 to 800,000 US. And of course we often need, or mining, mining operators need to have plenty of spares on site, including engines, when their mining operation is, for example, in a far-flung corner of the world where access and ingress and egress is a challenging concept. So let's just say we are trying to work out how many spare engines do I, uh, do I need for a three-year period for one truck. Now, before we rush to the textbooks to find the equation, what I want us to do or what I want you guys to do is understand before you do anything else, including anything related to supportability is understand how does this thing break now in previous webinars i have introduced the tree of failure where i have a bunch of questions that start at this top go all the way down to the root cause and corrective action that help you work out what you need to do so if something has failed or you're or you're trying to ponder how your system might fail before you just say it has failed, you need to say, well, what is it doing or not doing that has that classifies that particular event as a failure? Once you've defined what your system is doing or not doing, then you ask some more questions. What does the broken bit look like? How did that thing break? What started it? Now, in the bottom is we ask ourselves, what did we do wrong? And the answer to that question is essentially the root cause. The only thing you can change is your behavior. You cannot change the laws of physics. And the corrective action addresses the root cause, which is essentially what do we need to do moving forward to uh, either somehow mitigate this failure. Now, the bit in the middle, how did it break? The answer to that question is what we call a failure mechanism, the physical, chemical, electrical, thermal, other process, which results in failure. And, and veterans of my webinars will have seen the random hand of failure that I use often to represent the many different factors and and, uh, and uh, things and characteristics which introduce uncertainty into how long our thing lasts. You can see that uh, I have a few up there, four different um, factors, but there's tons more than that. 
And frustratingly, what that will do is mean that seemingly identical components or machines will have different times to failure. You can see on the horizontal axis, we have 100 blue dots or circles representing the times to failure of 100 seemingly identical machines or components. And the frequency or the density of these data points is described by what we call a probability density function curve. Now, every random process, including failure, has this PDF curve. This characterizes the uncertainty in time to failure. And every different failure mechanism will have a very unique curve. It's shaped in a unique way because each failure mechanism is going to fail in a particularly uh, unique way. Corrosion will have a different PDF curve um, when, when compared to fatigue, for example. But once we have a PDF curve, we can use the information encoded within this PDF curve to draw what we call a reliability curve. You can see here the reliability curve starts at 100% and goes down as our system gets used and it will eventually hit zero as our time to failure increases. Now, why is this important? Is because this is the PDF curve of a failure mechanism that has an increasing hazard rate, the rate at which a thing that is still working fails. And if we have an increasing hazard rate, that means our system is wearing out through failure mechanisms, mechanisms like diffusion or wear or oxidation or lubricant contamination. In fact, if you see a PDF curve, which has a beautiful bell shape like this one, it is failing through failure mechanisms, which has this additive wear out characteristic. That is damage is accumulating proportionately to the use. And so there's tons of examples. So this is what one wear out failure mechanism looks like from the perspective of probability and statistics. And this just so happens to be the probability density function curve that describes the times of failure of our truck engines. The reason why that's important is because it is only wear out failure mechanisms that can uh, be, for example, subjected to preventive maintenance or condition-based maintenance. Anyone, uh, can anyone tell me why that is the case? Why, can, why is it that only wear out failure mechanisms can be subjected to preventive maintenance or condition-based maintenance? Anyone want to hazard a guess? So I think William writes, understand the failure help, understanding the failure helps us extend the life of components, but for current state, we only care that engines fail at a rate. We need that many spare engines, whether it is cylinder wear or gear failure or tying belt breakage out of service is out of service. I don't think that answers the question though. Uh, Karen's a lot closer because she writes that worsening or degradation can be detected ahead of failure. Without wear out, we cannot predict when the item will fail, says Victor, which is not entirely true. But Greg is uh, on point. There is no value in proactively replacing a part with random failure. So all failure is random. I think we're getting close to the point, though. I like what Karen is saying, though, is that wear out implies the accumulation of damage. And so servicing or preventive maintenance, all that is, is the removal of damage. So if your failure mechanism is not based on the accumulation of damage, there is no point in doing preventive maintenance. Okay, yes, Greg, I understand. Greg points out there is no value in, in, in proactively replacing a part with constant failure rate. That's the point. You, you don't uh, mitigate those parts where things wear out, where damage is accumulating. So condition-based maintenance, essentially all that means is that when we say condition, we actually mean understanding how much damage exists. Think of a fatigue crack. The length of that crack is the amount of damage. When that crack hits a certain length, your thing fails. So because our thing is wearing out, that means we can do preventive maintenance and condition-based maintenance. Now, this PDF curve, this weird-looking one, which is more to the left, uh, this is what it looks like when our system is wearing in, which is not our engine in this case. 
Uh, this is not particularly intuitive, but this is a PDF curve that sort of morphs away from our bell curve when we see wearing or infant mortality failure, where we have a subpopulation which is defective. A defective subpopulation usually means manufacturing quality, but often mean that we have training issues because it's not being installed correctly. could also mean that we might need to have a burn-in regime where we try and expose those defects early. And this is Greg's constant failure rate where this PDF curve, which is anchored on the vertical axis, constant failure rate or constant hazard rate is all about things that are caused by randomly occurring external stresses that are catastrophic. So weather phenomena, voltage spikes through our electronic components. It doesn't matter how old or young a capacitor is, if it's going to be subjected to a 5,000 volt uh, spike, it is going to have a bad day. So those sorts of failures where they are caused by catastrophic external stresses appear at a constant hazard rate because it doesn't matter how old or young your system is, it's going to die. For, for tires, we associate vehicle tires as wearing out, and they do. But if they're failing due to puncture from spikes or debris on the road, doesn't matter how old or young your tire is, when it goes over that spike, it's going to fail. And so those failures, at least, would have a constant hazard rate. And most of our textbooks, unfortunately, focus on constant hazard rate. And why is that important? Well, it means that if we use the textbook approach where we assume our uh, engine has a constant hazard rate, then we will get this prediction in terms of the number of failures our, our, uh, our poor old truck's going to experience over three years where we need to replace an engine. And so you can see here that there is a roughly 22% chance that our engine will not fail in three years according to this textbook approach. There's about a 34% that only one... Uh, there'll be only one failure in a three-year period. There is a 25% chance that we'll have two failures in a three-year period if we assume the thing has a constant hazard rate. And that means that if we want to be pretty sure that we have enough engines on site, i.e. 99.55% in this case, well, we need to have uh, five engines because all those bars add up to uh, create a value of 99.55%. So long story short, if you want to be 99.55% certain that you have enough engines on site, you need to have five engines if you use the textbook approach, which assumes things don't wear out. I know. But if we use the right approach where we actually understand how our engine fails, we know it's failing you to wear out, then it's not doesn't have a constant hazard rate. And it turns out that the distribution of likely uh, engine failures is very, very different. In this case, we often we only need three engines based on this presumption to be, it's not 100% certain, but it's so close to 100% that there are not enough decimal points. Uh, so that means that if you understand how your system fails better, you might, instead of having to take five engines to some far-flung corner of the world, you uh, will only need to take three. And that's obviously a big deal. Now, this is an example, an exercise, not in supportability, but in support or logistics. All we're doing is working at how many spare parts we need. And it just goes to show that you really need to understand how your thing is failing to do that. But better yet, we want to focus on designing a supportable or more supportable device. So we need even fewer engines again. Simply calculating how many failures you're going to experience to uh, understand how many spare parts you need is not supportability. So let's go back to our armored personnel carrier, which has a tarp positioning system, which we've already looked at with a bunch of different items. And let's just focus on one component, the rotary gear drives. And the rotary gear drives are the motors which turn the, the, the tarp ring. Obviously, they're kind of a big deal. Um, and so that means that uh, we, if these things fail, our tire positioning system is done. And so our tire positioning system has two rotary gear drives. Now, during design or during a familiar process, um, perhaps one of the, or the fault tree analysis or, or whatever it is, one of our bright young engineers is uh, concerned about the insulation breakdown due to moisture. What does that mean? What is insulation breakdown uh, in an electric motor? 
Well, let's have a look at this particular um, phenomena that our bright young engineer is really concerned about. What does this mean and what happens when it occurs? Well, if we pull apart our electric motor, you can see there's tons of components and I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail about how electric motors work, but one of the key components is the stator, which essentially is over here on the, you can see it's circled on the right, got lots of electric wires wound tightly around a drum or a cylinder. What this means is that current is able to flow through our stator to create a magnetic field, which can then push against magnets. And um, that then essentially creates uh, kinetic energy by allowing the shaft to rotate. But if the insulation on these cables break down, that means there are teeny tiny short circuits. So as opposed to the electrons traveling the full length of our winding, our cables, they only travel a part of the way before they jump across and leave our stator. And that's a problem because if that, if that happens, you need more electrical current to generate the same magnetic field or more electrical power for the same mechanical output power. So question for you guys, is insulation breakdown a wear out failure mechanism for our rotary gear drive shaft? Is it wear out? Yes, Michael says yes. Well done, Michael. And why is it wear out? Um, feel free to jump in again, Michael, if somebody else wants to. It is an, a, a gaining issue similar to wear out. Um, I think William might mean aging. The reality is additive. So we, we're certainly, you're definitely getting there. Essentially what it means is that Damage is accumulating. So any failure mechanism where damage accumulates, i.e. an older version is less likely to survive the day than a younger version, then we have wear out failure mechanisms. Corrosion wear out because the damage accumulates. The amount of oxidation gets more, increases every single day. Fatigue wear out. The crack gets longer every single day. Lubricant contamination wear out because the amount, of contaminant, the amount of contaminants increases every single day. So if your thing is accumulating damage, then it is wearing out. Why is this important from a maintenance and supportability perspective? If you know that the main failure mechanism for this motor is insulation degradation and it is wear out, why is it important from the perspective of maintenance and supportability? Why is that important? We talked about this earlier today. There's, a, there's some well-known maintenance activities that can only apply to failure mechanisms that wear out. It will fail if this effect is not anticipated. Um, well, that is true in a way. Well, Actually, I wouldn't, I wouldn't agree with that, Evan, because I can anticipate failure and it will still fail. So if I just anticipate failure or the effect of it, it doesn't preclude it from actually failing. Drives a number of spares required in maintenance time. That's true, but that applies to things that don't wear out as well. We better understand what activities are effective. Yes, it will be degraded, but it will likely be impractical for reply. So um there's a, there's a, we're sort of dancing around the topics or the answer until we get to greg who says you would like to replace it before the failure occurs during a mission perfect if we have a failure mechanism that is accumulating damage it gives us the opportunity to either replace or repair it or remove the damage reset its life before it goes out on a mission it allows us to do preventive maintenance, servicing, or condition-based maintenance. We can only do preventive maintenance, servicing, or condition-based maintenance on things that wear out, things that accumulate damage. A um, couple of sort of rhetorical comments and questions. I 
need to pick apart, but we might move on because hopefully we got the point across that you can only do those sorts of activities on things that wear out. So before we do servicing intervals or preventive maintenance regimes, you need to understand how your thing is going to fail. And if you do understand how your thing is going to fail, then ask yourself, is it accumulating damage slash wearing out? Now, how can you get early warning that insulation is starting to break down? Now, I'm going to uh, share an answer to this question that when I was like, run Formica courses and one Formica course in particular where I had a bunch of students came up with a really cool way of uh, detecting or generating early warning that insulation is starting to break down in our rotary gear drive. So any ideas about how we could get early warning that insulation is starting to break down in our electric motor rotary gear drive? Monitor the electrical draw, increasing current draw, current draw, fantastic. Drawing more current. Now, one thing that we're missing in that, which is very apt observation, is that one of the issues with turret positioning systems is that the current draw is inherently variable. The reason being is that if the turret needs to rotate slowly, it doesn't need a lot of current. If it's rotating very quickly, it needs a lot more current. So it's very difficult to inherently look at the peaks and troughs of current draw and then work out if the there is more current being drawn for equivalent mechanical power outputs. Now, I can see that Michael is talking about doing an impedance test to look for turn to sh turn shorts. Fantastic. So that involves some sort of uh, inspection where you have, uh, you essentially measure the impedance of the electric motor. And we talk about rotation speed monitored by gyros versus inputs. Now, rotation speed won't be monitored by the gyros, William, because the gyros is all about the, uh, gives you the, um, uh, the, the position and the attitude of the hull itself, which is separate to the turret. But we're getting closer. And let me share with you the corrective action that the team came up with for getting early warning for our uh, rotary gear drive. Now, of course, you will have a machine or a computer which is hooked up to uh, to uh, the the, um, the the rotary gear drive, which not only monitors current draw, it actually controls it. So it, we have the, the the controlling software, the control the, the computer, which will control and of course then monitor how much current is being drawn. We also need to make sure that, uh, for example, uh, current draw will increase if there is some sort of lubrication issue, which is not necessarily related to insulation breakdown, or if for whatever reason, it's just harder to rotate the turret. And so the team came up with the idea of having really inexpensive strain gauges embedded in the feet of the bracket holding the rotary gear drive. And what that allows you to do is uh, understand uh, very easily, well, if we know the torque that's being output, and of course we can, we can easily monitor the, the, the rotational velocity as well, then we can compare the mechanical output, once we have the torque and the rotational angular velocity, and the amount of current being drawn, and we can monitor the relationship between uh, input electrical power and output mechanical power. The really good thing about this is it seems funky and really next level space age stuff, but it's actually not, it's really simple. And these strain gauges are really easy to implement if you think about them early enough. And so this is an idea, this is just, uh, this is a sort of brainstorming session you want people to go through when they're talking about condition-based maintenance and supportability and things like that. So a rhetorical question is, can predictive or condition-based maintenance, um, or how can we, uh, what 
action can be can we uh, implied or can we or sorry might work for the rotary drive shaft rotary gear drive shaft all the words are stumbling out of my mouth randomly at the moment for some reason well if we're able to compare the mechanical output power with the electrical input power we're able to set or understand or track or monitor without having to pull anything apart this can be uh, has the option uh, potential being transmitted wirelessly. It could be something where we have alarms, just the red light goes boom when it says we've reached a threshold of inefficiency that implies that we need to, within the next two months, get this uh, rotary gear drive replaced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But can we implement this CBM system after design phase? This is not a rhetorical question. How, if we come up with this idea after design phase, can we implement it? Yes or no, or any, any response in between? I agree with Asim. I also agree with Karen. Sim says no. Karen says at a cost. Evan says yes, but it is more difficult. Michael says it might be possible to add it during a maintenance operation. Yes. So it is possible, but costly. And as a rule, I've never seen this sort of thing get re-embedded afterwards after the design phase has happened, especially in the military context. In plants, this is much easier to implement. And when I say plants, you're talking about manufacturing plants, utilities, things like that, where you have a bunch of machines which are bolted to concrete, for lack of a better term, uh, and you have a lot more access. They're usually a lot more expensive, those machines, and therefore the motivation to look after a single expensive machine is, uh, is it's, uh, a lot higher. It's a lot off, often a lot more cost-effective to implement that for a, one of those single expensive machines. But if you have a fleet of 1,000 armored personnel carriers, each with two rotary gear drives, then you need to replace 2,000 rotary gear drive brackets you need to then have cabling run to the controller. You then need to upgrade the software. You then need to uh, go through the logistic information system to incorporate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it is easy to say, yeah, you can do it during you know, uh, some sort of scheduled downtime. But in practice, it's so much harder that it almost never happens. So let's move to another failure mechanism. Who has heard of an SN chart? Who has heard of an SN chart? SN chart. And this is... Anyone heard? At university, <laughs> fair enough, yes. So an SN chart is a chart where we have S on the vertical axis, S stands for stress, an N on the horizontal axis, and N stands for number of cycles. And we use this for fatigue. And very, virtually every alloy has an SN chart, which has been well studied. And you can see here, this is the SN curve for 1045 steel. You notice that in the horizontal axis, number of cycles is scaled logarithmically. And all this line does is tell you how many cycles it will take for certain stress levels uh, for your thing to fail due to fatigue. You know, it just so happens that with steel, there's this thing called the endurance limit. So essentially for this steel, if the local stresses are below 300 megapascals, it will never fail due to fatigue. Fatigue is a slow growth of cracking over time. And often SN charts have confidence bounds or confidence intervals or confidence regions because it's not perfect. Uh, there will be some variations to the theme, but uh, this, the concept remains fairly standard, fairly consistent. The idea is that you can use SN charts to work out the likely time or like how long your thing's going to take before it fails. And so fatigue, well, if you go into a, uh, if you do a uh, fault tree analysis or root cause analysis or FAMIA and say, you know what, the shaft is actually going to fail due to fatigue. People say, okay, well, that, that's all that is uh, all about cracks growing over time. You can see here that, for example, uh, if we have a 400 megapascal stress, 
then that might mean our shaft is going to take, in this case, 87,000 cycles before it's likely going to fail. That's a typical time to failure for our shaft. And we can even add a density curve like this to sort of incorporate the uncertainty we have in time to failure for our shaft. Now, if all of a sudden we're worried about fatigue on our shaft, why is fatigue a wear out failure mechanism for our rotary gear drive shaft? Why is it wearing out? William's asking questions similar to stress strength curve. Not quite. SN curve is, uh, is not a stress strength curve. Um, the SN curve literally maps stress to number of cycles. The stress strength curve is a has density curves for both stress and strength. But what so if we go back to this question, why is fatigue a wear out failure mechanism for the rotary gear drive shaft? Why is it wear out? Why would fatigue be wearing out? So I actually answered this a couple of times myself today, but uh, we'll treat this as revision. Why is a fatigue failure mechanism a wear out failure mechanism? Crack growth is cycle based, which looks like wear out. Well, it is wear out because a metal has a memory. That is uh, essentially, I think what you're getting at, Michael, is that the amount of damage that you inflict on a metal, I, the crack growth you incur the first three months will be ready to go for the last three months. It is accumulating damage or accumulating over time, i.e. accumulating damage over time because its components have a limited life. You could argue that every component has a limited life to, regardless of wear out, wear in or anything in between. But essentially, anything that accumulates damage and fatigue cracking where the cracks grow slowly is a perfect example of the accumulation of damage. That makes it a wear out failure mechanism. Now, of course we go, all right, well, that's all well and good. So wear out, then we can look at preventive maintenance and servicing and things like that. But let's throw one more curveball into our little thought bubble for today. Let's just say that if a mirror identifies that there is a chance that a fraction of rotary gear drive shafts will have manufacturing defects. You can see here are some example defects in the molecular lattice or the atomic lattice, I should say, of the alloy. You've got impurities, vacancies, dislocations, substitutional atoms, grain boundaries. And these defects, what they do is they amplify the local stress. When you say amplify, what that means is that the local strength goes through the roof which means that uh, uh, if there is going to be any cracking, it's going to start near these defects. Well, let's just further say that um, a process called highly accelerated uh, stress testing, for example, identified that these defects will cause fatigue cracking. Now, these defects only exist um, in a small fraction of overall rotary gear drive shafts. So if we have fatigue, which we've just called wear out, but it's being triggered by defects that exist in a small population of the overall, overall fleet. Is this overall wear out or wear in or something entirely different? Sim says wear in. And I like it, even though the thing is actually in a very uh, physical sense, um, failing due to a wear out failure mechanism. The fact that it is triggered by defects means that it will exhibit as wear in. And the idea is that what will happen is that after a arbitrary period of time, rotary gear drive shafts that don't have defects will simply stop failing due to fatigue. They'll eventually fail due to fatigue, but it's going to be an order of magnitude later on in the times of failure uh, continuum. And so what that means is that even though we have a fatigue cracking or a wear out failure mechanism, we simply can't just use preventive maintenance or predictive maintenance to address this issue. We need to, uh, we need to look at things that address manufacturing defects. Everyone asks, does it have to be one or the other? Well, it usually is because the wear out and wear in have very different statistical signatures or characteristics. The hazard rate is either going down or it's going up. And so 
it has to be one or the other. It's either going down or going up. It can't be both. But even though I've perhaps thrown a curveball your way by saying, hang on, a wear-out failure mechanism might exhibit as if it's wearing in if it's being triggered by defects in a small population of, of overall systems. So if that's the case, what might you be able to do in order to uh, address situations associated with or failures associated with fatigue triggered by manufacturing defects? What can we do? Material quality, uh, continuous monitoring. Well, bits, built-in testing. The reality with built-in testing is, again, that usually is associated with uh, um, uh, the accumulation of damage, which is uh, which is a, a hallmark of wear out. Brad mentions, get a better manufacturer. Always a good one. Concur. Let's just say that... Uh, Review manufacturing process, so which is along the same lines as Fred, is either like by substitution or improvement, get a bit of an improved manufacturing process. Let's just say though you're concerned about these things as potential. What can you do as the operator, the user, the prime contractor? What can we do? Burning, right. Now, what is burning, David? Harry Smith, <laughs> nice read. So David's talking about this thing called burn-in testing. Spec motors before wear out, wear in phase, and if they pass, uh, I think, William, that's a sort of a, so it's, it's a sort of hodgepodge of ideas in there. Um, when you say inspect motors before wear out, wear in failure, well, um, and extend the replacement interval on good motors, that's mixing both condition-based maintenance and fixed interval maintenance. David Kinsey goes back to running, and that's essentially what burning means or running means that you might get these, um, these motors from the manufacturer and you put them on a test rig for a week or two weeks or however long. And when that happens, those, those, um, those motors which have those defects in the shaft are likely going to fail during that initial testing. And those without defects will pass at flying colors. And so the ones that fail during burning, you just don't use. They never get to your supplies or your spare parts uh, store. Those that do are the ones you then use. Uh, Michael then pointed about X-ray the supplied sharp metal. Absolutely, that's a good idea. It's going to have to be subject to a cost-benefit analysis, and essentially, if the shaft is embedded within the actual um, uh, the motor itself, that might be problematic. But that's that is one thing we can look at is the whole idea of incoming inspection, uh, first likely failure interval in lieu of burning test. I'm not sure what that means, William. I think there's a few ideas that are being uh, that are being combined in your responses I don't completely understand, but I'm happy to uh, explore those perhaps in our own time uh, via email as well. Uh, ESS will not prevent fires, but will prevent potential units with limited life from being fielded. Yes, yeah, so I'm talking about environmental stress screenings, which is uh, different to burning, at least in some definition, but the idea is you're trying to uncover or identify uh, those units that have defects. Now, the main point of this is not to try and come up with a, an approach that will definitely work for the system, just trying to think about it. Now, if we don't think about it, then we'll come up with mandatory ideas and mandatory things if we just say, hey, fatigue, damage accumulates, wear in, we'll just service, preventive maintenance, inspection, done, move on to the next thing. If it's caused by manufacturing defects, then you need to have a completely different approach. It comes down to how you deal with things. But let's go back to that, um, to the uh, the whole idea of um, uh, the failure mechanism associated with insulator breakdown. If we want to implement a corrective action like what like the one my Familiar team came up with, 
it has to be designed into your system. You need to design supportability into your system. So how does supportability interact with reliability? In many cases, the technical interpretations of both definitions, they don't overlap. But in practice, reliability and supportability are all about understanding how your system fails and understanding it early so that you can incorporate things like monitoring the current draw versus mechanical or power output, uh, incorporating sensors for built-in testing of the things that are going at the parts of the system that, that are going to keep you up at night. And the whole idea of just waiting to uh, design something that can work uh, as quickly as possible and then thinking about uh, sprinkling supportability all over it, that has, I should, shouldn't say never worked, but it's just either one, unlikely to work or two if it is going to work you need to spend a lot of money uh, reinventing the wheel so to speak redesigning your system to have these sensors built in supportability has to be designed into your system and when it comes to things like uh, welding up the belly plate of an armored personnel carrier if you don't think about these things uh, from the very start then you have Ridiculous scenarios where the entire power pack needs to be taken out for you to change the oil, all because we didn't think about it early. Now, I understand that there is, uh, uh, we've just reached the, gone past the hour mark. I'm more than happy to hang around and answer questions. But uh, for those of, those of you who need to spear off and uh, do something else, thank you for your time today. Hopefully you got something out of this. Please feel free to reach out to me if you uh, have any further questions. Or want to talk about this any further but uh, if anyone's got any more questions uh please feel free to to uh to write them and i'll go through chats to see if i've missed anything uh william writes there this is an example of where accelerated stress screening may actually reduce the life of the shaft or putting the shaft on a different place in the SN curve for accelerated stresses that's always a, a risk however if you understand the fatigue characteristics well enough of let's just say defect-free steel, you will be able to understand how much life you lose from burn-in testing uh, for good units, but you should also be able to work out how many defective units you will remove. And therefore, if a reliability engineer is good enough, they'll be able to uh, uh, work out whether it's worth it or not. Thank you, Evan, David, and Victor. No, not a problem at all. Uh, thank you for joining us and answering questions. Oh, sorry, asking questions. Uh, thank you, Asim. And Sebastian, thank you. Lots of thanks. Uh, feel free to... I need to hire a good metals person. Yeah, absolutely. Critical thinking is uh, one of the most important ingredients for reliability and supportability. Thank you, Greg. And Michael, thank you.